You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs, as well as another special guest this week. We are welcoming Andrew Cunio, member of Team Ultimate Guard, to the show. So excited to have you on. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So we would normally, again, just have to like, we'd talk about our lives, Ben, but no one cares. We've got a very exciting guest to have on. So we're going to try and dive in as quickly as possible. But before we do that, we have a little bit of business to attend to. Uh, We have some new patrons to welcome this week. Uh, That's right. We do have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you as a listener can give back to the show if you so choose. Some sweet perks there. When we have guests like Andrew on, we uh, try and crowdsource some questions for him. So our, our patrons got some questions in this week. Uh, You get access to our Discord channel uh, where we have all sorts of different chat rooms for what's the play, for deck building, for draft decisions, uh, for questions for me and Ben. Uh, That's just for the base level. Get access to our show notes or pre-show recording for some higher levels. And we're going to shout you out on the show the first week you join. So we want to welcome Tomas, Charles, and Francisco to the fold. Thank you so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, we cannot say thank you enough. It is insanely awesome to have new patrons each and every week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I believe all three of us have been grinding uh, to some extent the uh, Anniversary 25 Masters 25 set online. So we want to do a little check-in on the trophy leaderboard. Ben, how have things been going for you? Yeah, I've now got uh, 22 drafts under my belt, seven trophies. So trophying about one and three there. An overall record of 46 and 20 for a 69% win rate. But I am not doing nearly as well as you. You've been on an insane hot streak. What's going on with you? I did go on a heater. I was 30 and 2 in 11 drafts in a row. So over 34 drafts, I have 13 trophies. I'm currently in second place in the the Phantom Q's leaderboard for 74 and 28 win-loss record and a 73% win rate, which I'm sure is due to plummet. You don't need you. I heard that apology in your voice about those phantom cues. Don't apologize. Phantom for life. Phantom for life. Andrew, how's this format been shaking out for you? Have you been playing it a lot? I played it a lot the first couple of days it was out, and I played one day this week. So I, I've got 13 trophies, and I think I, I've i not kept detailed records like you guys did. I That's fine. I think I've probably gotten a trophy in maybe 35 to 40% of my drafts. I have not been playing in the Phantom Qs, and I definitely regret it. Oh, really? Just the cost of the singles is, it's better to play in the Phantom Qs, because I've gone 2-1 a lot, and you definitely lose when you go 2-1 in, in the uh, real Qs. Feels like if you don't open a, a Jace, I think that's that's really the only card that's worth more than the cost of your draft. It's uh, tough to recoup that value when you 2-1, yeah. All right. Well, so for for anyone who's living under a magic rock and and doesn't know you, (laughs) maybe you could uh, tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your your history with magic. So I've been playing for a really long time. I played on the Pro Tour in the late 90s into the early 2000s, like somewhat seriously. And I had uh, two Sunday appearances at the Pro Tour, which are top fours in Team Rochester. And then I stopped playing competitively for eight or nine years. And I started up again in, I think, 2012 or 2013 and like went through the process of requalifying for the Pro Tour. And so I've been playing on the Pro Tour since then. I'm on Team Ultimate Guard, like you said. And right now we're in first place in the uh, the team standings for the Pro Tour this year, which I don't know how closely you guys or your listeners follow it. The way the team series works is kind of convoluted, but we're doing well <laughs> on that. Yeah, that's awesome. 
I won GP Indy, which was a, a limited Grand Prix that happened, uh, I guess, four or five months ago now. Mm-hmm. And Grand Prix Mexico City, which was a team-limited Grand Prix that also happened in the past year. One other thing I would say, just to summarize it, is if anybody follows me on Twitter, I did do a, a series, which I haven't quite finished, where I was tweeting draft decks from Pro Tours over the whole time span I've played. So if you want to, like a visual representation, you can just see all the different formats I've played in. And a lot of the cards are very old. Some of them are new. That's really cool. I got to go check that out. Yeah, I've been following you on Twitter. It has been awesome to check those decks out. Really cool to see what you drafted. And it's kind of like a walk back through memory lane because I drafted a lot of those formats too. So I have a quick question for you before we hop into roundtables. Do you think of yourself, because I was looking up your, your stats as well before we started the episode, in my brain, maybe I'm living under a magic rock as well, but I had you categorized as like a constructed player and like inventor of the draw go deck. Do you think of yourself as more of a limited player or a constructed player? Uh, definitely more a limited player now. Well, you're in the right uh, right company here for these kind of discussions. So I, I'd be remiss to, to not mention that Dustin Stern, a fellow Pro Tour competitor and a frequent namer of my misplays in Twitch chat, <laughs> same, <laughs> set up Andrew to come on the show for us. He sort of reached out to Andrew on, on our behalf. And part of that was because he was noticing your success in the format being Anniversary 25 and how your approach to the set was different than, say, how Ben and I were approaching the cards. And so I'm really excited to get your thought process on a few roundtable discussions here. And then I think that'll be a good way to launch us into uh, some other questions that we have for you. So if you're ready, would you like to take a seat at the roundtable, Andrew? Sure, I'm ready. Okay, cool. So uh, this is a draft that I did earlier in the week, and we're going to go actually the full pack deep, and you'll, you'll see why in a minute. But for uh, for the first pick here, cards in contention are uh, your rare is Courser of Crefix. That's one green green for the 2-4 enchantment creature. That lets you play with the top card of your library revealed. You can play the top card of your library if it's a land. And whenever a land enters a battlefield under your control, you gain a life. Uh, there's a Fiend Hunter. That's one white-white for the 1-3 creature that uh, enters the battlefield, allows you to exile another creature. And then when Fiend Hunter leaves the battlefield, you return that creature to that player's control. There's a Mana War, two and a blue, for the 2-2 creature that ETBs and unsummons a creature. And Kindle, one and a red, this is the catch-em-all instant, deals X damage to target creature or player where X is 2 plus the number of cards named Kindle in all graveyards. What do you think about those picks, Andrew? I think that it pretty clearly narrows down to Courser versus Fiend Hunter. Courser's definitely a better card on its own. The only reason to consider the Fiend Hunter is that you've got Cloud Shift and White Man Lion both at common. And Fiend Hunter's so good with those two cards. I think I would still take the Courser, but Fiend Hunter's definitely, if for some reason you you want to be white in the format, you could you could take Fiend Hunter, it'd be fine. I think I would be on the Courser as well. Yeah, and that is what I landed on as well. I hadn't gotten a chance to play with this yet, but I feel like a good uh, good rule of thumb is if the card's in cube, it's probably probably pretty dang good. But both of these are <laughs> both of these I think are actually in, in most cubes. All right, so with Courser of Crufix under our belt, we move on to Pack two, which is a pretty weak pack, seeing only a couple good cards in white. There's a pacifism that's one in a white for the aura. Uh, enchanted creature can't attack or block. And at uncommon, we have an Urbis Protector, which is four white white for the uh, one one human cleric that when it ETBs makes a four four white angel creature token with flying. The best green card in the pack is there's like the Elvish Aberration, which is the forest cycling six mana four five. And a Kavu Climber, which is the five mana three three that draws a card when it comes into play, but both of those seem pretty far behind the two white cards that we mentioned. 
I got to see the whole pack, and and there's one card you didn't even yeah. list that oh. stood out to me, which was just a chroma. And yeah. I'm not bringing it up just to so that we have to spend ten minutes reading everything it does. <laughs> but it's I don't have it in front of me, but it's like six six flying pro red pro black. I think trample haste vigilance. It doesn't have life link, but it has almost every other ability a card can have. It does a lot. Like it costs eight mana, so it, it is extremely expensive. But I. Th- think that it's just a better card than the Urbis Protector. I don't really like Urbis Protector very much in this format at all. Hmm. If you don't wind up blinking the the 1-1, one, one, just getting a 4-4 four, four flyer for 6 mana is, it's okay. But if it gets mana ward, you know, you get something really bad against mana war. Yeah. I'm not excited about that. I would have probably considered taking the Acroma just because if you wind up in some sort of white green ramp deck, it is really good top end. So it kind of goes with the Corsair a little bit better. I also would have considered just taking the Elvis Aberration just because the Corsair is really strong, and I think the Aberration is the best green card. And it provides a shuffle effect with Corsair, which is not nothing. Yeah, that's a minor synergy. Like, obviously, you're, yeah. you'd rather just play a 4-5 if you've got 6 mana than convert a 4-5 into a forest just to shuffle, but sure, can certainly matter on, like, turn 4 of the game. Ben, what would you be on here? I think I would have landed on Urbris protector as well i would have i would have been under the thought process that a chroma was a little bit too expensive and i think i would have landed on the herbers protector yeah i've only seen it in play once and it was pretty backbreaking uh when my opponent casts it uh because it does have haste which i often overlook on that card but yeah i just it felt like the color requirement and it being so expensive felt like it was maybe went in too narrow of a deck and i've not had uh not been so down on herbis protector but i hear what you're saying definitely about just getting mana ward can really set you back so you would be on elvish aberration here just because it goes so well with Corsair and you really want to play that card? Yeah, I think so. It, I mean, th- like you said at the beginning, this is just a bad pack. There's not a whole lot of reason to let this pack shape your draft. It, it just... I'd That's probably fair. take the Elvish Aberration just because I, I want to stick with the Corsair because I, that is a really good card. All right. That's fair. I, I did grab the Urbis Protector here, but wasn't super thrilled about it. All right. Moving on to pick three. There's not much. Again, we have a pretty weak pack. There's a, a Hordling Outburst, which is one red red for the sorcery that makes three one ones. There's Murder, one black black instant destroy target creature. We could also mention that there's a Quicksilver Dagger, which is one blue-red for the aura that gives a creature tap. This creature deals one damage to target player, and you draw a card, which is just fine value if you can stick it on something and activate it once, but also goes pretty bustedly with the uh, Horseshoe Crab at common. But the rest of the pack, I think, is pretty weak. I'm not sure which... What what would you be on here, Andrew? Uh, I think I'd be on Murder. Actually, I want to pull the pack up. Oh, sure. Look, because... So the fact that there's a Murder in the pack still is potentially a very strong signal. Mm-hmm. The rare is missing from the pack, right? Yes, that is correct. The draft viewer gives like old rarities, but yeah, the, the rare is missing here. And maybe one of the uncommons is missing because I, I see two uncommons in the pack, but not a third. Caustic Tar and Quicksilver Dagger is the, are the two uncommons in this pack. Okay, so I, I would still take Murder just because I think it's the strongest card, but it's not really that strong of a signal that Black is going to be open because there's there are certainly rares that are better than Murder and they could be Black or any other color. And the same thing with, like, there could be a Ravenous Chupacabra that was in the pack that was taken. Are you saying Murder's, like, not necessarily a Black signal as a, maybe I would, you would take one of the, so we're not naming all the cards, but there's a Kavu Climber and an Ambassador Oak in green in the pack. Would you maybe just try and stick to your, your green guns so you can play Corsair again? No, I, I would definitely take murder. It's just a, a, a matter of trying to figure out, is this just, am I getting this because it's, you know, I, am I getting the second best black card? Maybe that was in the pack, or am I the first person to take a black card out of this pack? If it was the case mm-hmm. that we still had the rare and all three uncommons, 
it's likely that people picked other cards and just didn't want a black card for whatever reason. Right. There's also the issue with foils, but I think we can tell that this pack had a foil, has a foil primal clay in it, which has not been taken. Mm-hmm. So it's just starting to try to read some signals, just because murder it can be a very strong signal. Yeah. Ben, what do you think? I'm on murder as well. And I think it's super interesting that you're trying to read, like, am I just getting a good black card and taking it here because it's a good black card? And how much of it is a signal that I should be moving into black? So very cool. Moving on to pick four, we actually have some cards to talk about here. Uh, there's an epic confrontation. That's the one in a green uh, sorcery target creature you control gets plus one, plus two, and it fights a creature uh, you don't control. There's a treasure keeper. That's the four mana, three, three artifact that when it dies, uh, you reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal something with CMC three or less, and you may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Uh, and then you put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. There's pillory of the sleepless. That's one white black for the aura enchant creature. Uh, enchanted creature can attack or block and enchanted creature has at the beginning of your upkeep. You lose one life. What do we think here? I would take epic confrontation. Are you asking me if I'd taken the, the picks I would have taken thus far or just based on what you've taken? Yeah, let's. you're navigating this draft yourself, so based on the picks you've taken so far. I, I would take Epic Confrontation just because I would have the Elvish Aberration and I would be more focused on a green deck. And I think Epic Confrontation is you know, one of the best green commons. Mm-hmm. I think even if I had taken the Urbis Protector, I would still be on Epic Confrontation here. I think I like that card a little better than you do, Ethan, and I think it pairs well with the Courser, and I the Courser's so strong that I really would like to be green. And Pillory sort of feels like we're abandoning green a little bit at this point if we take Pillory here. Yeah, you're right, Ben. I am down on Epic Confrontation. We were Skyping last night, and I, I just feel like that card, I think it's very powerful if you are in an assertive green deck. But if you're in a ramping green deck, I find that you often will have like access to other colors or fixing for other colors so that you can play better removal spells. Epic Confrontation feels bad when they have open mana. It feels bad when you're not like affecting the board in a meaningful way with like Arbor Elves early in the the turns of the game. So I, I don't know. That's that's where I'm at on that card, and at least in, in the style of green decks that I've been drafting. I did grab Pillory of the Sleepless here, like to pair with the Murder and the Herbus Protector, and maybe I'm going to go white-black, or if I end up green-black or green-white, it's splashable. Though I don't love... I'm also not a, a huge fan of Pillory and Pacifism in the format, just because there is so much blink and bounce and main deck enchantment removal that you can get pretty hosed by playing this card. Yeah, I, I agree that this is not a great set for enchantment-based removal. No, not at all. Yeah, I came in pretty hot on pacifism and then had to walk that back pretty quickly after playing the set a few times. So you guys are both on Epic here. I took Pillory, um, and I believe we'll, we probably will continue to diverge uh, as we go to pick five, where we see a counter spell, the blue-blue for instant counter target spell. There's White Main Lion. That's the one on a white 2-2 we were talking about before that has flash. It enters the battlefield, and you pick up a creature you control to your hand. Frenzied Goblin is in the pack as a nod to like a good aggressive red card. That's the 1-1 one, one for one red that uh, when it attacks, you can pay a red to make a creature not be able to block this turn. And uh, Vampire Lacerator as a nod to a, a good aggressive black card and a single black for a 2-2, two, two, and you lose a life if your opponent has more than 10 life at the beginning of your upkeep. What do we like here? I think I'd pick Counterspell. It's one of the best blue cards, and it's your only chance out of this pack to get a real premium common, and the uncommons just aren't particularly good, so... I, I think it's just the best card in the pack, so I'd, I'd take it. 
Tim, what do you think? I would be on Ambassador Oak here to match up with Epic Confrontation in my Corsair Crew Fix. I've liked Ambassador Oak quite a bit against the aggro decks. If I'm playing an aggro deck, it's the card I least want to see out of my opponent if they're green. Uh, on the other side of the battlefield, it feels like it stabilizes the board really well. So I have a question for Andrew, though. If you're taking Counterspell here, what where what is your thought process at this point in the draft? Are you feeling out maybe abandoning? Let's see. You had, so you had all green cards, the black cards. So you're trying to decide between being green, black, and green, blue at this point in your mind? Yes, and and just the fact that this is one of the like masters level sets where you you're always going to get enough playables. It's just a matter of can you get the quality high enough. It already l- sort of looks like we're not going to get into like a super focused monocolor deck, which you wouldn't really expect to do that if you start with a courser. Like if you're a base green deck, you're not going to draft a mono green deck. There's just not really any reason to be that focused on green in this set. So you're going to be some sort of a mid-range base green deck, and you're going to just want to make sure you have a high power level. So I'm not concerned about potentially wasting a pick here while I'm trying to decide, you know, what what's my second color going to be with green if I want to get to a, a high power level deck? And and also, you know, if I have a counter spell and a murder and I wind up abandoning all the other green cards, you know, those are two cards that maybe I'm a blue-black deck or whatever direction I take, you know, I've got two good cards in my pool that can wind up in my deck. Ambassador Oak is fine, but you're going to get a lot of chances to take cards at the power level of Ambassador Oak. So it, it's not really filling a, a unique slot. You're right that it's the best defensive green four drop you can get at common. That is something but I, I just I think counterspell is really strong sweet yeah that makes a lot of sense to me I keep having to remind myself over and over again that you're not going to be short playables in this format and so like you can just take take a chance to take the best card the most powerful card out of the pack like counterspell I yeah, as as I've diverged from you guys uh in the past I'm looking like I've you know I've got an herbs protector under my belt I've got a couple good black removal spells I, I grabbed the white main lion and I was like maybe I'm gonna get into some sort of white black ETB deck uh I hadn't taken a green card since Corsair so I, I'm down quite a different route here pack one pick six Again, we've got a pretty weak pack. I guess, yeah, for for those who have taken some green cards in the pack, your green card is Lull, which is the fog with cycling. Uh, there's a black card in Return Phalanx, which is one in a black for a 3-3 with Defender that has the one in a blue activation to make it be able to attack this turn. For people drafting white cards, there's a core Firewalker, which is white-white for the 2-2 pro-red. Whenever a player casts a red spell, you may gain one life. I'd like to just mulligan this pack personally, but uh, what, what, what would you be on here, Andrew? I would, again, pick a card that wasn't given as one of the choices. I, I would take Dragon's <laughs> Eye Savants, which yeah, is there we go. an 06 for one and a blue, or you can morph it to have a 2-2 two, two for three mana. It unmorphs by revealing a blue card from your hand, and you get to uh, look at target opponent's hand. You can't use it to look at your own hand. <laughs> Pro tip right there. I played a lot with Gitaxian Probes, and I, I know that you can use it to target yourself, mm-hmm. which is a good way to save a click on Magic Online if you already know the contents of their hand. Because <laughs> if, if you probe yourself on Magic Online, you don't have to click OK to, to stop looking. And that's that's just that's gaining you minutes in the match, I would assume, right? Pure gold. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's, ga- it's probably gained me minutes in the course of my life. But... <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's good. So yeah, that's probably probably the best like main deckable card. I've been pretty impressed by Dragon's Eye Savants as being able to like flip up instant speed when they go to disfigure your morph or it's a yeah. pretty good blocker against the aggro decks. That makes sense. If we're thinking about being like maybe a green blue deck, there aren't that many two drops that you really get in a green blue deck. Mm-hmm. And so like playing this guy face up on turn two, if you're playing against a red deck or, you know, any other sort of aggressive deck, it's gonna be an effective card, just as an O six wall on turn two against a lot of decks. Yeah. Ben, what do you grab out of this pack? 
I'd have grabbed Dragon's Eye Savants as well. I think having just seen the counter spell, I'd be wondering if blue was open and this pack is total poo for anything that I've picked so far, I think. So yeah, I may, maybe there's some thought to watch Wolf, like to pair with the Herbus Protector, but I think I'd be on Dragon's Eye Savants. Yeah, I grabbed the Firewalker as a sideboard card with my thought process of still thinking that I was a, a white-black deck at this point. Moving on to pick seven, there's a Broodhatch Nantuko, which is uh, one on a green for the 1-1 one, one with Morph. Uh, and when it's uh, dealt damage, you may put that many 1-1 one, one green insect creature tokens into play. And I assume if if I took that out of this pack, that, that you both having actual green cards in your deck so far would also be on this. Uh, no, sorry to disagree again. Yes, yes. I have a question that's going to date me for sure. Did you play when they still had damage on the stack? Yes. Yeah. In case anybody who's listening didn't play. It used to be the case that you would do combat and after you knew your creature was taking damage and after it dealt its damage, you had another opportunity to do something. Brutech Chinantuka was printed under those rules. So what mm. you could do was you could have it be a 2-2, deal 2 damage, then with damage on the stack flip it face up, and then you would get all the 1-1s. One that card's so much better under the old rules than it is under these rules. Mm. I don't think it's a card you should play with very much in this set, in these rules, because what winds up happening is most of the creatures are kind of small in this set. Like, a lot of people never play anything bigger than the 2-2. Two -two. And so this guy, if you want to fight a 2-2, two -two, you leave it as a morph, and that's fine, but that's the same as any other you know morph that you never unmorph. If you flip it face up, you get like... You would get two tokens, or maybe, you know, you get it blocks something bigger, and you get three or four tokens. But it never kills the creature it's blocking, unless you, like, get to pick off a jackal pup, which is the dream scenario. So I, I would pick the Cabo Climber out of this pack. I actually think that's a pretty good card. So I just want to throw out that we're, you're saying, I mean, I guess it makes sense that you're saying, like, you're not going to get much value out of the thing. But it feels like a fine defensive two-drop in a blue-green deck, the same way the the Dragon's Eye Savants does like, you know, fog and make two one ones feels like not a bad card. Whereas the Kaiba Climber feels like a bit more replaceable to me. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that? I agree. The Kaiba Climber is kind of replaceable. I just, I, the upside on the Brute Hatch Nantuku is really low. Like if you play it face up against your opponent, they're going to get the choice of whether they want to attack into it and let you get the two guys. You're almost never going to get the scenario where you play it face down and they're really worried about it. So they, they point a removal spell at it, and then you get to flip it up and you and you get the guys. Because it costs three mana on Morph. It's expensive, unlike the Dragon Eye Savants, which is free. Yeah. And there's also the issue that if you want to get the tokens out of this thing, you block with it, you pay the mana, you flip it face up. If your opponent has, like, murder or disfigure, you don't get the tokens under these rules. There's, like, a lot that can go wrong with this card, and there's not that much that can go right. Like, if you're playing it as a defensive two-drop, sort of the scenario you're, you're hoping happens is you play it as a defensive two-drop, your opponent decides, well, I'm just going to have to attack through it anyway, I'm going to attack my 2-2 two -two into it. Mm -hmm. You're going to chump, then you've got two one ones, and then next turn you're going to be like, all right, I guess I'm just having my two one ones block your 2-2. Two so it, it's, it's like right. a card that's hoping to trade with another card over two turns. It's, it's Occasionally it's going to be an insane top deck when you just, like, you need to chump block a Twisted Abomination for a turn, and you're like, this is the best card ever, I got a <laughs> chump block Twisted Abomination for six turns, but... <laughs> I think normal case for this card is it just doesn't really do all that much. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't quite like pieced through like, okay, what is the best case scenario for this card? And not great. Trading with a 2-2 over two turns doesn't seem like the best. Ben, what do you think? Uh, I'd have been on Nantuko here. I, I had the same thought process as you about it. I feel like it's a fine defensive two drop, but maybe I am maybe I need to rethink that after hearing hearing Andrew's yeah. well laid out argument there. 
Yeah, for sure. So then in this next pack, well, I, now I'm feeling feeling nervous about like the cards I decided to talk about because I feel like everyone I I say, Andrew's like, no, well, you missed the one that I want to take. <laughs> uh, so this this next pick, again, is a pretty weak pack. And I've like navigated this in a way that I'm like probably white black, but who knows? And I like, there's a Nizumi Cutthroat in the pack, which is one in a black for the two one with fear and it can't block. And in most black decks, I've been pretty happy with this card. If, if I'm more controlling, it's a nice unblockable threat. Obviously, you have to side them out aggressively against some opponents and uh, if you're an assertive deck and i think this can get in a lot of damage as well and i think white black can sort of go in different directions in this format um so i i grabbed that as the black card over the ruthless ripper which is the black for the one one death touch with morph and when it flips up by revealing a black card you deal a dam- deal two damage to an opponent there's a green card in ember weaver which is two and a green for the two three with reach and if you have a red permanent uh, it gets plus one plus oh and has first strike but i don't think that's what anyone else would be on in this pack i'm not sure what what, what are your guys thoughts here I like the black cards. I think I would take Ruthless Ripper, which in my mind is it's very close in power level to Nizumi Mm -hmm. Cutthroat. The reason I would lean towards the Ripper over the Cutthroat is the Ripper can go in a, a more defensive deck better than the Cutthroat. Mm-hmm. And also, I like if if I'm going to wind up in a super aggressive deck, mm-hmm. I think the way this format is, you really want to make a play on turn one if you're an aggressive deck. So I do like the fact that you can play it as a one drop. That's it's perfectly respectable to play a one one death touch on the first turn. But like the cutthroat, that's a fine black card. I've been happy to have that in aggressive black decks too. Yeah, Ben. Uh, I think I'd be on cutthroat here, looking to maybe be some sort of a green black beatdown mid rangey type deck mid-range proactive type deck and cutthroat i think has been very close to a two powered two cost unblockable creature against most decks and sometimes you just have to side it out pretty aggressively yeah for sure and the reason i wanted to, to bring up this draft so i'm, I'm going to sort of like run through the the picks that round out this pack and then if, if you guys have different thoughts about where where you would have navigated things i'd love to hear them but so i i got grabbed an izumi cutthroat again pick nine over not much for what i currently had uh and then a supernatural stamina which is the same single black plus two plus oh instant for a creature that uh, then if it dies you return to the battlefield tapped under your control or its owner's control um, and then a couple erg raiders after that which is the one out of black for the two three that uh, deals two damage to you if you didn't attack with it that turn and then a couple vampire lacerators which is the single black two twos that we talked about earlier so a lot of like aggressive black stuff wheeling and this is generally how so i'm like basically tossing a bunch of my previous picks in the garbage and feeling like mono black aggro is open. And that's often how I've been finding myself getting into those kinds of decks is like seeing the picks late and then seeing them wheel in pack one and realizing that like no one else really wants them. Cause it feels like once you like sort of plant your foot in that kind of archetype, like the mono black, the mono red or some combination of those early, then you really get rewarded in, in packs two and packs three. But I'm curious what, what you guys would have done if you had moved in on that as well, or sort of stuck to the, the green mid range or, or the green blue life that, that maybe you had, Andrew, where, where you all would have ended up here. Uh, I, I like what you did. I mean, I like pivoting to the aggressive black card seems like it was clearly open. So I, I think I probably would have done that too. Cause even though I started out differently from you, like, I think we both agreed on that mm-hmm. murder third pick. And then right. most of the places where we disagreed, it was like a white card versus a green card. Mm-hmm. Once you hit this, like the, the cutthroat train here, it's pretty clear that, that there's good black cards available. And so I, I think mm-hmm. you, you got in the right lane and it worked out pretty well for you. 
Yeah, I think I'd have done the same thing. I don't know if I'd have been thinking I was mono black yet necessarily, but I certainly would have been thinking like green black aggro. Uh, and maybe if I'd gotten more black, I'd have moved into mono black as well. Sweet. We all would have maybe ended up the same place, but we certainly did not take the same routes getting there. Ben, you've got another uh, roundtable for us to look at here, yeah? Yeah. Um, let me take you through it here. Let me pull it up. So pack one, pick one, you see the following options. Chandra's Outrage, two red red for the instant deal four damage to target creature, and that creature's controller takes two damage. Cross and Tusker, five green green for the six five boar with cycling two and a green. And when you cycle it, you can search your library for a basic land card, reveal that card, put it in your hand, and then shuffle your library. Perilous Mirror, two mana for the one one artifact. And when Perilous Mirror dies, it deals two damage to target creature or player. And Prophetic Prism, the two mana filter artifact, you can pay one, tap it to add one mana of any color to your mana pool. And when it ETBs, you draw a card. What do you guys think about that? Andrew, you first. I think I would take Perilous Mirror. I think this set, you definitely want to make sure you have enough cheap plays, and it's, it's a very good cheap play, because it, it pretty much is going to trade with anything that your opponent, like any two-drop your opponent's going to play, Perilous Mirror will trade with. Also, I'm a fan of it with Phyrexian Ghoul and Unearth. So I think that it's it's got some good synergies with, with black, which is the color I'm looking to draft if it's open. That's interesting. Yeah, I was actually on Skype with Ben in this, in this draft, and I was saying, like, I think that card is really strong, and uh, it's nice that it's colorless because it's going to just, like, make the cut. But my, like, counter-argument to that, where maybe I talked myself out of it, was that, like, again, you're not going to be short playable, so you can sort of take the risk of, like, taking maybe a more powerful card in, say, the removal spell of Chandra's Outrage or the Mana Fixer or just Big Dude in Croson Tusker that I don't need to prioritize the Perilous Mirror here. But it is uncommon, and it is going to make your deck a lot, and it is so strong against aggressive decks, which, like, I often want to make sure I have answers to. Like, it just, like, is so miserable when you're playing a mono red or, or whatever, an aggro red deck or an aggro black deck, and Perilous Mirror is just, like, going to two-for-one you, and there's no way to stop it from doing that. But I think I would have also probably been on outrage here just grab the good removal spell yeah i ended up settling on outrage as the removal spell but we were really torn between outrage tusker and perilous mirror so interesting to hear that you would have taken perilous mirror there moving on to pick two you see the following options arbor elf single green mana for the one one tap to untap target forest you control and note that on magic online that forest doesn't already have to be tapped i totally misclicked with this card the other day <laughs> on an untapped forest felt terrible Ugh. epic confrontation one in a green for the sorcery fight spell target creature you control gets plus one plus two and then fights target creature you don't control promise of bunray two and a white for the enchantment whenever a creature you control dies sacrifice promise of bunray and you make four one one white spirit tokens Sift, three and a blue for the sorcery. Draw three cards, then discard a card. And Griffin Protector, three and a white for the two, three Griffin with flying. And when a creature enters the battlefield under your control, Griffin Protector gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. Thoughts here, Andrew? I think I would take Promise of Boonray. I've been pretty impressed by that card. It's sort of awkward because if you want to be a white-black sacrifice deck, there aren't that many sacrifice outlets. You're basically just talking about mm. Phyrexian Ghoul and uh, Fallen Angel, which isn't uncommon. But, like, certainly if I go Perilous Mirror into Promise of Boonray, I'm hoping to be a, some sort of Phyrexian Ghoul deck. And I also think Promise of Boonray, if you're just a, a more aggressive white deck, is just good on its own, too. Probably if you're, like, a, you know, aggressive white-red deck, the Perilous Mirror is not going to be great, but Promise of Boonray would be great in that deck. So it's, pre it's a somewhat flexible card, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I've been way more impressed by that card. I did not play in Kamigawa Block. Uh, that was during my, like, years that I wasn't playing Magic, but... I think that card is way, way better than I initially thought it was. 
it's so awkward to play around if they get it out early. I think I would have taken Arbor Elf here over Epic Confrontation as a green card. I think that's a sort of a nod to what I was talking about in the last round table of like my preferences for green decks being more uh, rampy and, and splashy than taking Epic Confrontation, which I feel like is a, maybe a bit more shines in uh, narrower decks for me. So I think I, I would have landed on Arbor Elf here, but I certainly can see the, the thought toward Promise of Boonray. Yeah, we got three different cards going on. I, I took Epic Confrontation here. Uh, Amaz was on last week and drafted with me some last weekend, and he's got me he's got me hooked on the green-red aggro train. <laughs> so Epic Confrontation for me here. Moving on to pack three, you see the following options. Woolly Loxodon, this is the morph for three mana. Five GG for a six, seven, and it's got a morph cost of five and a green. White main lion, one and a white for the two, two flash. When it enters the battlefield, return target creature you control to your hand. Dragon's Eye Savants, the morph we talked about earlier. Three mana to morph it. One and a blue for the 06. When it's turned face up, you get to look at your opponent's hand. Inox Survivalist, this is one and a green for the two, one with morph. When it's flipped face up for one and a green, you get to destroy target artifact or enchantment. And Thresher Lizard, two and a red for the three, two lizard. And if you have one or fewer cards in hand, it gets plus one, plus two. You, you don't want to shout out Stang. I love Stang. <laughs> Stop it. What is the internet's obsession with this card? Well, I I think I'm driving it somewhat because I I really, (laughs) I streamed with this set a little bit. And at one point I actually got out an original legend Stang and held it up the camera that I just happened to have that, you know, it's, I flipped it around. It's played from, you know, me playing with it, not in sleeves. At the time it was printed, it was really cool. It was like, there'd never been a card like that before. I mean, now in this set, it's just incredibly bad. So I have no (laughs) idea why they embarrassed Stang like this by bringing him back. (laughs) I would take the survivalist. I, I think that it's uh, it, there are a decent number of like good rare enchantments and or artifacts that you're going to want to be able to kill. And like the survivalist is splashable. It also goes with the the green cards that uh, other people have picked. It it's just the best card, basically. Yeah. What a what an overperformer I think in this format. Like it's so nice to be able to have in the green decks a, a turn two play to just trade with a two drop if you need to, but also to be able to blow up a pacifism or, or whatever and, and anything better than that. I would also be on survivalist here, though this pack is pretty sad, I think. This is not the kind of card I want to be taking pick three. That's what I ended up as well. Uh Inox Survivalist for me. So moving on to pick four, you see the following options. Heavy Arbalest. This is the crab combo piece. Three mana for the equipment, four mana to equip it, and equipped creature gains tap. Enchanted creature deals two damage to target creature or player. There's another Chandra's Outrage, the four mana deal four damage and two to the opponent removal spell. Frenzy Goblin, single red mana for the 1-1 one, one Goblin. When it attacks, you may pay red and have target creature not be able to block this turn. Elvish Aberration, the forest cycler we talked about earlier, four and a green for the 4-5, taps to add three green to your mana pool and can forest cycle for two mana. And there's also a cloud shift, single white for the instant. Uh, exile target creature you control, then return it to the battlefield. So blinks your creature. I would take Chandra's Outrage, which even even though I didn't take the first one, I, I just think it's the best card in the pack. And like this pack has a lot of cards in it that I think are like bad traps that I'm definitely not going <laughs> to pick. Like I think Heavy Arbalist falls into the just a trap card that you shouldn't put in your deck ever. Yeah, where do you fall on the like crab deck camp? Do you feel like that's a real deck? I think it's really bad. I, I think the power level of the cards in the set is generally high. So almost all of the cards that go in like the crab combo decks, they're bad on their own. Like Heavy, heavy Arbalist is just awful if you don't have the crab or a Nettle Sentinel, which is another card that combos with it. I'm glad to hear you say that because that's that's how I feel as well. Yeah, I haven't drafted the crab deck yet. I just don't. I also haven't really seen it. Like it just doesn't seem like it comes together, which is shocking because a lot of the pieces are common, but the removal is so good in the set. 
Yeah, it, it, people, I've had people play the crab against me a couple of times, and sometimes they even get to do their thing, and it still just isn't good enough. <laughs> like, it's certainly like the crab retraction helix thing. I've had that done to me, and it's just kind of whatever. I finally lost to someone. I thought that I had yet to lose a match to someone who had the crab in their deck, but I finally lost to someone who had a crab in their deck. It had nothing to do with why we lost, or why I lost, but I have lost to someone who actually put it in their deck now. <laughs> are there other cards in the pack that you feel like are traps? I'm looking at uh, Valor and Acro specifically. I wonder what your thoughts about that card is. Yeah, I think that card's really bad, too. I, I think you should pretty much never play it. You didn't read it, but there's a Haunted Fangraph in this pack, too, which is, I mean, that just looks bad, so I don't know how much of a trap it is, but I've had people play it against me a lot, and mm -hmm. I really don't understand what the appeal of that one is. So this is a land that taps for generic mana, and you can pay three, tap it, and sacrifice it to return a creature card at random from your graveyard to your hand. I just don't know how people have room, like a deck that might want that effect. I don't know how it has room for a colorless land, one, but also like returning a creature card at random from your graveyard to your hand is bad. It's not that good of a trap because it just looks really bad, but I have <laughs> had people play it against me, so I guess they got hooked. They got hooked. My general feeling in the format has been that you cannot afford to have colorless lands in your mana base. Unless you're aggro. Like, I played Mistress Factory or uh, Zoetic Caverns in my, like, mono-colored aggro decks, but that's about it. I, I've had a mono-red deck where I, I played Pendlehaven, which is I mean, sort of oh, colorless land. nice. I like that. I like that. Cool, cool. And if I, like, if I was actually a mono-red deck, I might put Haunted Fengraph in my deck as, like, you know, I'd play 15 Mountains and Haunted Fengraph if I had one, but putting it in a two-color deck is just asking for trouble. And I've had people play it against me in, like, three-color decks. Yeah, that's when I just I don't understand how that could possibly be right. Okay, moving on to pack five. You see the following options. Shadow Mage Infiltrator. This is one blue-black for the one three with fear, and when it deals damage to an opponent, you get to draw a card. Crimson Mage, one and a red for the two one, and it's got the activated ability of single red to give target creature haste. Horseshoe Crab, the trap. Two and a blue for the one three, and you can pay a single blue mana to untap it as many times as you want. Path of Peace, three and a white for the sorcery. Destroy target creature. That creature's controller gains four life. And Psy of the Shinobi, the equipment one mana for the plus one plus one equipment, and it has an equip cost of two. And whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you can automatically equip Psy of the Shinobi to it for free. Well, I like the Crimson Mage, so I, I, I would go with that. I hate that Psy of the Shinobi. I don't know that it's as bad as a trap card, but I really don't think it's a very powerful card. When I was streaming this set, a lot of my viewers seemed to really like that card and wanted me to pick it. And it's the kind of card that I know that I'm almost never going to play with because I'm never going to pick it high enough to actually get it. Like, someone else is always going to take it. And my problem with it basically boils down to it's great in your perfect draws. But if you talk about a hand where maybe you mulligan or you just you have a weak draw, you know, maybe you only draw one or two creatures and, and your opponent can kill them or your opponent just plays something that it's going to trade with regardless of, of the side. Like you just have something that has such a small impact on the game unless you have a perfect draw. I wonder how much of people's hype of Psy is about like how good Cutlass was in Triple Ixalan, you know? Like maybe people are just like higher on equipment, but like plus one plus one is not worth a card generally. And how, what would you have been on there, Ethan? Uh, I think I'd also been on Crimson Mage with the two Chandra's Outrages, but not super happy about it. Like this is, I mean, it's a good card, but it's again, a little, little early to be picking a card that feels like a bit replaceable and maybe not super good unless we are like a more streamlined aggressive deck, but I would have grabbed that here. So moving on to pick six, you see the following options. Zombify, three and a black for the sorcery, return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. Shoreline Ranger, the Island Cycler. This is five and a blue for the three, four flyer with two mana Island Cycling. 
Mystic of the Hidden Way, four and a blue for the 3-2 Unblockable with Morph, and you can turn it face up for two and a blue. Skirk Commando, one red red for the 2-1. Uh, whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may have it deal two damage to a creature that player controls, and it's got Morph for two and a red. And Echoing Courage, one and a green for the instant. Target creature you control gets, no, target creature gets plus two, plus two, and all creatures that share a name with that get plus two, plus two as well. I think I would take Zombify. Because I think that there are some number of powerful combos with that card. Certainly, like if you get a, so you did, you had a choice, an option for a Crossing Tusker, but you didn't select it early on, and I, I didn't select it either. But like if you get a card like Crossing Tusker, it makes Zombify a lot better. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think I would take Zombify rather than Shoreline Ranger. Obviously, you're branching into a different direction. All the other cards in this pack are kind of nothing; they're basically replacement level. So I think I'm going to go with Zombify. Not a great choice, though. Yeah, I think I would have been on the Shoreline Ranger here, but a Zombified keeps going up and up and up for me, especially just because it's not at all embarrassing to, even with the Shoreline Ranger, to just like cycle this on two and then play Zombify on four and get a four mana three, four flyer. That's totally fine. Um, and you can do more busted stuff with like Merfolk Looter or whatever. So I definitely see Zombify as a good option. Yeah, I ended up on the Shoreline Ranger as well. I was torn between that and Zombify and ended up settling on the, the Island Cycler. Pick seven, you see the following options. Uh, Shoreline Ranger again, an Ember Weaver. This is two and a green for the two, three with reach. If you control a red permanent, it gets plus one, plus oh, and first strike. There's a Blightning, uh, one black red for the sorcery. Target player discards two cards and loses three life. And a Knight of the Skyward Eye, one and a white for the two, two. And you can pay three and a green to give it plus three, plus three until end of turn. And you may only use that ability once per turn. I would take Blightning. I think that's a really powerful card. And I, I, I like it when you've already got the two Chandra's Outrages that also deal incidental damage because like you're you're sort of working to a strategy where you are going to be able to burn your opponent out from like you know eight life some of the time probably i like that i'm not like super high on blightning like maybe it's just because i didn't play with it in the original set or like but isn't it just basically mind rot and that's not great or is that better in this format like i'm not sold on this card i think this is not a great set for mind rot in general because the format kind of splits between really aggressive decks where mind rot is not generally good against really aggressive decks or like slower decks that have so much card advantage that they're gonna fight through the mind rot it's really the it's the combination of like the mind rot being decent obviously and then like three damage just you wouldn't put a card in your deck that was you know three mana deal three damage to your opponent but three damage Mm. is a substantial amount right no for sure yeah, so I think that's a fine place to wrap up this draft. Uh, there's nothing like shocking about it from this point out. Ended up in red green, and it seems like Andrew, maybe you might have been navigating a bit towards red black yeah. with those last couple picks there. But then I wheeled some some late green and red cards, including a nettle, a nettle sentinel and a frenzied goblin. So that sort of put me into like a green red aggro deck. That ended up medium at two one. Was nothing special, but I do have a quick question for you. There are a couple brow beats here. What are your thoughts on brow beat, Andrew? generally not a very good card but if you wind up with like a lot of burn in your deck it can be okay you need to be a deck that's going to come out fast or like really pressure your opponent's life total and one other thing i would say about it is that it's templated really weirdly like a lot of cards in this set so i had did have someone misclick with it and target me with it and then he didn't want to pay the five life so he just played a card that i drew three cards 
That exact thing happened to me yesterday also. And it was a situation where for you as well, I was like, oh man, I can't pay the five life. I guess they have to draw three cards and then three cards appeared in my hand. I put it in in one deck in this draft format and the first time I cast it, I I read it very carefully because this set has, I mean, it, it has so many reprints from such a long span that a lot of the cards are templated weirdly or they they follow different kind of guidelines for how like how flexible targeting should be and so being able to target your opponent with this is not something that would happen if they printed a new version of it today so it's just something to be careful about with that one for sure and for like future master sets or reprint sets i think that's a good safety tip yeah, I think it's a good time to move into Discord questions here um, from some of our from some of our patrons. So the first one we've got up here is from Abaceris. They want to know how do you approach the beginning of a format when the meta isn't very defined and varied pick orders can lead to weird signals? Do you try and push archetypes early to get experience across the board, or leverage shared information from other pros? I'll go into this, and I'm just going to say that probably my experiences are not that useful for other people, just because the life of being like a competitive pro Magic player is very different from what a lot of people get to do. So when a set starts getting spoiled, I don't pay any attention to it for limited. I'll look for cards if they're going to be relevant for whatever constructed format's coming up, but basically like all the commons, I'll skim through them once, and if it doesn't look like it's a constructed rate card, I just forget about it. Then when the set goes live on Magic Online, I basically have my whole week cleared, so I can just do nothing but play that set. So I'll just dive in and start drafting, and I, you know, the first for the first draft, I'm literally just reading every card in the pack. <laughs> <laughs> but like my plan is usually like I'll do 50 drafts of the, the format the first week. And if it Whoa. if it's like a format I really like or a format that for some reason I want to be really super prepared, like I could do 80 drafts in the first week. That is insane coming from two people that like to draft a lot. Uh, so yeah. one thing you do have to understand is that I only do the single elimination drafts. Right. So that number of drafts is if you're doing a Swiss format, it like you obviously can't get to that number because, you know, I might oh one three times in a row and I do three drafts in basically an hour. Mm-hmm. Well, an hour is probably pushing it. But if you're doing single limb, you can do them a lot faster. And, and I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that probably the people who are playing in the uh, competitive queues tend to play faster on average. Like, I, I feel like I play faster than, you know, people who just don't get to play as much. It's, it's perfectly understandable. Right. So we do, like, I, I prepare with the other guys on Ultimate Guard. So there's some amount of information sharing. And there's also, so, like, um, I didn't really have specific stats for you at the start of the program. And that's because this is not a format I'm preparing to play at a Pro Tour. If it was a Pro Tour, I would be able to cite more detailed statistics than even what you guys are keeping track of. So we, we do do a lot of that. And, you know, I get I get to see the, the information that the other people on my team are uh, keeping. I don't know if, if the name Brock Parker rings uh, is familiar to people. He's The way pro teams work is confusing, but he's a, sort of a teammate of mine, but not on the six-man team. He'll draft mm. basically as much as I do. He's the guy who, if you watch the mocks coverage, he was at that, and they were citing, you know, people's win rates and how many drafts they had done. And he had done like 8,000 more drafts on his account, or maybe it was matches. Then even like the next most person at the tournament, like he had done, he played 40,000 matches of limited or something insane. Wow. He's the same way where he, he's been playing since the start of the program on the same account and he'll just play a ton when it, when a format's new. So just to kind of summarize it in a way that's an answer for the 
person's question. I have no expectations about like what a meta might be or what pick orders might be. I'm literally just like, I'm looking to, to you know, just learn as much as I can. And also, since I know I'm going to get to draft so much, I'm perfectly happy to like look at a rare and be like, I have no idea if this card's good or bad. I'll just take it right now and just try to draft the deck around it and see how that goes. And if it does well, I'll like the next time I see that card, I'll just like try to repeat that deck. So in the uh, in the format that had Imminent Doom, which I think was Hour of Devastation, yeah, maybe? Hour of Devastation, yeah. So when that set first came out, I was drafting it, and I saw Imminent Doom, and I was like, that just looks terrible. I'm not going to pick it. Owen Turtenwald, you know, posted a, a thing in our forums that he thought the card was good, and he had had a deck and had done well with it, and he thought it was a good pick. So the next time I saw it, I was just like, well, all right, I'm just going to I'm gonna try this. And I probably picked it pretty highly. And then within, like, the first two weeks of playing that set, I probably drafted with Imminent Doom 15 times. Like, I, I had had decks that had three copies of it in it, which is a lot since it was rare. So it's definitely, like, the approach I take is to try to learn as much about the format as fast as possible, because I want to get to the Pro Tour and know all of the archetypes, and also, like, the ideal is to know archetypes that other people don't know. And so if they're open for you, you know, you can get a really good deck, potentially, which, that doesn't happen very much, but it, a lot of, like, high-level magic is putting in tremendous amount of time to try to get small edges that may never even come up. That's sort of what drives the approach for preparing. So for a set that you are prepping for the Pro Tour with, what are the kinds of stats that your team does keep track of or that you're interested in keeping track of and seeing from your other teammates? I'm going to be a little bit vague on this because there is it is sort of a competitive... Uh, oh, for sure. Secrecy thing. But, like, we'll certainly keep track of, like, color pairs, maybe, you know, how many lands you're putting in your deck. If it's a tribal set, which tribe's good? It's nothing that you, you can't in, envision... But it, it is, it's a little, like, we keep, you know, spreadsheets, so there are, it's, you know, running calculations of, like, you could, you know, a week into drafting Ixalan, you could be like, you know, Merfolk was winning 62% of its matches, something like that. Yeah. It's more detailed than just win-loss. I honestly don't pay any attention to my win-loss <laughs> when, when I'm, I'm preparing for the Pro Tour. Like, I, it's all entered in the data so I could look at it, but I, I don't even look at it. I'm trying to focus on, like, what's the way that I can learn the most about the format? And then I want to also get data on, like, how do the decks perform? So, like, if I know that if, if I have an idea of, like, what an average version of a blue-black deck is in the format, what's the win rate of a blue-black deck? So, you know, that's kind of what I can expect. So then I know, well, is that something I want to try to get? Or do I want to only draft blue-black if I get a really good card for it? Or if it seems super open? Things like that. So this next question, you sort of already answered a little bit. This is from Devin. He wants to know, do you have any insight based purely off of spoilers as to what better archetypes are going to be? Do you spend a lot of time with the spoilers before the set comes out? And what do you try and glean from them? I did say a lot about that, which would, it was kind of, you know, I don't really rely on that very much. One thing I would say that I think is a mistake people make when they do look at spoilers is, so the people who work at Wizards and develop the limited format, they're smart people, they know a lot about magic, and they get to put a decent amount of time into designing the limited format, but they're not perfect. If you ask them, you know, like, are all the different two-color pairs balanced in the set that's coming out, they wouldn't say that they were. I mean, they wouldn't say that all the mechanics are perfectly balanced for limited either. And to be honest, they're not trying to do that. They want, you know, some of the mechanics are more for constructed, some of them are more for limited or maybe for, you know, some casual format. 
So it's not set out that all the mechanics are going to be balanced. That's not like a goal from the start. And then they also, they make mistakes sometimes and something they think is going to be good winds up being really good or something that they think is, is, you know, mediocre winds up just being awful. So the way that that causes me to think about things is when I look at the spoiler and you look at kind of what they're trying to push to be a theme and limited, you would think, I don't take their word for it, basically. Oh, interesting. I want to play and develop my own opinion. So like, if you look at this current set with the horseshoe crab, they obviously seeded the horseshoe crab with these different things that it's good to be able to untap. The quicksilver dagger and that whatever that bow equipment is, <laughs> retraction helix. <laughs> That's all in the set with the intent of that being something someone would do in a game of draft. And when I saw that one, I was like, this doesn't seem good enough. So my take was sort of like, I'm going to play the format. I'm not going to try to do that, probably. If I start seeing people beating me doing that, then maybe I'll, I'll give it a second look. But that looks like it's just something they put in the set and was just a miss to me. This is going to go back a few years. If you remember drafting Gate Crash, which was the one that had oh, yeah. Demir. I really liked drafting Demir in that set. I thought it was really good, which most people thought it was bad. Yeah. But the thing that was weird about it was there's the, the crazy uh, encode cipher cards. Cipher, yeah. That was like the theme of Demir. Those cards mostly were just bad. And so they had a common that was like a 2-2-1 blockable for three. And it seemed like the design intent of, of that guild was that you would get your 2-2-1 blockable for three and you would play one of those cipher cards on it and you'd get to cast a free spell every turn that way. And that was just bad. Like, it was so much better to just be like a controlling deck, not put 2-2 unblockables for three in your deck, and just try to kill and counter everything your opponent played, and then just play as many of the extort guys as you could get from the Orzov side of things. So that's just a like an example of a where you can't really take for granted that the themes that are seeded into the sets are going to be what actually winds up being the right strategy. You really need to get to play. And this isn't a knock on the people that do the development, but the reality is that, you know, they're a much smaller team than the amount of people that are going to play on Magic Online or, you know, even at your local store, you might have like 24 people that show up for draft night. They have 24 people in Wizards that work on the building that might work on the sets, but not every day. Like, the teams are smaller than that in general, and they're going through iterations on the cards. So even if we're able to look and say, oh, yeah, it's obvious Horseshoe Crab's not good enough for this set, they maybe got to do two or three drafts on what the final iteration of the set was, and maybe four iterations before Horseshoe Crab was the best thing, and they just changed a bunch of cards. So you need to learn the sets by playing more so than uh, speculating or relying on them to have come up with themes that work well. That's super interesting. Matt has a question here for you, which is that uh, he's interested in how aggressively you will cut cards to fight for a lane into an archetype that you feel is more competitive than others versus the the maybe conventional staying open, but maybe ending up in a quote, worse archetype for your seat. So like your thoughts on forcing an archetype versus staying open and is it format dependent? What are your thoughts there? It's hugely format dependent for sure. So in, in Rivals of Ixalan, let's say. So Rivals was one where I didn't think the, the archetypes weren't that strongly defined in Rivals. If you go back to like straight Ixalan, mm -hmm. and in that set, Merfolk was one of the best archetypes if you were the only Merfolk drafter, or like you got the good version of the Merfolk deck. That was one of the best decks. So that was one where if you started with a Merfolk card, you, you wanted to just do nothing but cut Merfolk cards because you really wanted to be in the good version of Merfolk. And there are other archetypes where it's a little, where you don't need your deck to be as focused. It basically, it depends on how much do you want to have a focused deck versus a deck that's a pile of good cards. 
So if you're trying to draft a focus deck and you have a reason to be in that focus deck, like don't just start doing this before you even look at the packs. But if you start with like, you know, the, the Merfolk rare and you want to try to draft a Merfolk deck, you need to either be all in or decide that you're out. You can't kind of waffle very effectively in those kind of decks. If you just start with like, you first pick Vraska's Contempt or something that's just going to be a good card in any black deck, you can definitely, uh, you know, try to figure out, well, what's my second color going to be with my Vraska's Contempt? Or you, you wouldn't want to splash Vraska's Contempt, but you don't need to, to force it as hard there. The other thing I would say about this is it also, it's not just format dependent, it's hugely dependent on how good your first pick is. So if you open one of the best cards in the set, like, say you're playing Amonkhet and you open a Glorybringer, you just got the best card in the set. What percentage of the time would you guys say that Glorybringer should make your deck if you just first pick it? At like 95% of the time? Yeah. Yeah, very high percentage. Yeah, like if, if I first pick a Glorybringer, it, it almost doesn't matter what happens in the rest of the draft. I can <laughs> guarantee I'm going to have at least seven mountains in my deck. Like I could just call, I could just be like, Judge, bring me seven mountains. I'm going to need at least that many <laughs> as soon as I make my first pick. That's obviously not legal to do, so don't do that at your local store. But it, it, <laughs> that is a card where if you get it, you should force yourself to play it. You maybe need to do something crazy where you wind up splashing it, even though it's double colored, but like it should be in your deck. There's just nothing that can happen in the draft where you'll ever be able to make up what you lose by not playing with Glorybringer. So I have a follow-up question to that. So let's say you're in the current format with Tetsamok and it's pack two. Like maybe you're in like some sort of a, a red-blue mid-range deck and you open Tetsamok in pack two. Are you totally, are you abandoning ship on one of those two colors to put Tetsamok in your deck? Probably. If you go, the uh, the most recent Pro Tour, which was the Rivals of Ixalan one, mm-hmm. the first draft is, it was a completely stacked pod that had Seth Manfield and Owen in it. So that, that became the feature pod, and I was in that pod as well with, like, some other, like, Ari Lax is a Pro Tour champion, uh, Ben, I think his last mm-hmm. name is pronounced, Sweets, who's, a, like, a Grand Prix champion and has had a lot of success. And, and, and I don't want to slight the other guys, but they, they weren't Seth Manfield. So it was a super stacked pod. It was featured, um, so there's a draft viewer available. If you watch that draft, I pick basically red cards to start the draft. The first black card I pick is pick five of the second pack. I pick a Ravenous Chupacabra. And from there, I switch into being red-black. Just because the Ravenous Chupacabra was, it was the best card I saw up until that point. I eventually saw Burning Sun's Avatar, which is arguably better than Chupacabra. But it's just, you don't get that many opportunities to get a truly great card. So you do need to kind of warp your drafts around them. One thing I would say for, if you want to prepare to do that, I'll generally, like, even if I don't get a, an insane first pick, but it, it's something that, you know, it's a card that I, I was willing to first pick, I'll try to stay in that color as much as possible, certainly through the first pack, just so that if you open an insane card in the second pack, you can pair it with, like, a solid base in one color. To me, part of staying open is, like, one way that you stay open during a draft is you give yourself, like, a firm base in one color that allows you to pivot into whatever the color that winds up being open is. Even if that's not the color you gave yourself the firm base in? Well, no, no. like, you give yourself a firm base in one color, and then when you get the insane rare in the second color, that becomes your second color. Right, okay, I see. If you do a draft where you're like, you know, I, I pick a red card, I pick a red card, okay, now I pick a white card over a slightly worse red card, now I pick another white card, and then you end the first pack and you've got, you know, five red cards and four white cards, and then you open up an insane blue card, it's much harder to switch into blue 
because then you're you're in a, a playable deficit. You're sort of four playables behind getting to a functional deck. Right, right. Whereas if you've got, you know, six or seven, the hole's not as big. And like everything in draft, there, there are kind of trade-offs. And depending on how deep the format is, this is more or less important. But it's something I do try to think about is if I give myself, by sticking with one color whenever it's close, you give yourself the most options later. You're kind of deferring the decision on your second color as long as you can. Very cool. Dylan wants to know, are there any tells you pick up on that you're playing against someone with little magic experience? Basically, what sticks out that you think newer players should try to improve on? This is an interesting question for me because Magic Arena just came out. It doesn't have draft yet, which is uh, terrible. disappointing. Yes. <laughs> it's supposed to have it eventually. So this isn't super germane to this program, but on that program, your hand is always kept in a consistent order. So when you get your opening hand, all of your lands are on the right. All your spells are to the left. The, the spells may be sorted some way. I, I haven't paid that close attention to it. Whenever you draw a card, it goes onto the left side of your hand. You can move the cards around in your hand. All this information is reflected to your opponent. Right. So, like, you can rearrange the cards in your hand, but your opponent can watch you do that. It's, like, it's kind of like a game of three-card Monty. But the, the point is, if I was playing competitively on Arena, I would be watching my, the animations of my opponent's hand every time they drew a card because they reveal information about how, you know, how many lands they might have in their hand. This is a long introduction to, if I play a person at a Grand Prix and they seem less experienced, one of the easiest ways to tell is that they don't protect their hand when they draw a card. Not that they literally, like, turn the card face up and I see it, but if you draw a land off the top of your deck and you don't put that card in your hand and shuffle it with the other cards and then immediately put it into play, I know you drew a land for your turn. And if I was worried that you might have just drawn a combat trick, I know that I don't have to play around a combat trick. You didn't just draw one. So if you've ever seen the video of, like, the Kibbler shuffling video where he's uh -huh. shuffling super fast, that's a combination of an actual useful thing to do when you play in real life with a nervous stick on Brian's part. <laughs> What's this what's this real life magic thing you're talking about? We don't we don't yeah. we don't do much of that around here. Well, so that's a real life one. The other thing is sometimes when I play against newer players, they appear to be afraid of having their creatures in combat. So if I played against another pro player and they went through a whole turn cycle where they played a creature and it didn't attack or block. They just put the creature into play, didn't block with it. They take their next turn. They don't attack with it. You know, and it's like a, it's a creature that's big enough that it could at least trade in combat. I'm definitely, that's like raising a red flag to me that they've got some big plan for that creature. So it's important somehow. If I play against the person who doesn't, they seem like they're a newer player. They're just doing that. They're just like afraid that I could have, you know, cards in my hand that they just don't know what they do, basically. They're afraid of something that they don't know what it is, and it's causing them to not want to risk their creature in combat. So that is something that definitely, it should be very rare for you to have a creature that it sits in play and doesn't attack or block. Like, you have to be really sure that that creature is so important that you don't want anything bad to happen to it that would happen in combat for you to not do that which that could happen, but it, it's rare. Cool. Phantoms in the Brain wants to know, as someone who's known as a control player, what were your thoughts on Amaz's comments last episode that Cultivate is a three mana zero zero? Obviously, there's a little bit of hyperbole going on there, but your take on that. So I, I listened to that whole episode with Amaz, and he said a lot of things that I thought were kind of objectionable, but the general gist of it was that Amaz says a lot of things that I basically agree with, that the format is actually really aggressive. You can't just, you know, use turns two and three doing something that doesn't really affect the board. So at the, like, the high level, I agree with him. I don't think Cultivate is a bad card. I don't think it's an unplayable card in this format. It's just... 
it's a card that if, you, if you're going to put it in your deck, you need to build your deck such that you're going to be happy to cast it on turn three if you draw it. Like, you can't put that card in your deck and be like, yeah, I'm going to play this on turn five once I've already played my cheap creatures. You need to put that in your deck with the intentions of playing it on turn three if you draw it, with the understanding that you might be a little bit behind, so you're going to need to have five and six mana plays that are going to allow you to catch up, which that might just be like a big creature that's like whatever good uncommon or, or rare you happen to draft. So it's not a card for every deck, and it's a card that you need to have a specific strategy for, but it is a powerful card for sure. Great. So we had a couple questions from folks in Twitch uh, the past couple days. One was from uh, Pella Cooling, who asks, what cards lead you into drafting a deck like the one that you first posted on Twitter? So you posted a, a pretty nasty mono black deck on Twitter. Is that the seven vampire lacerator one? Yeah. Yeah. I noticed there were a lot of vampire lacerators in the packs. <laughs> Is that a thing where you're like tracking them and then you're like, oh, maybe this will wheel or are you like moving in aggressively? I mean, we sort of had a, a taste of it in the, the round table, but. I don't remember the specific draft, but contrary to what I said earlier, I did skim the spoiler for this set a little bit before I played it just because I, I haven't drafted all of these kind of master sets and I just wanted to see what was in it to see if it, I, I felt like playing it. And one of the things I noticed was that there's a two power one drop in all five of the colors, which there's never been a magic set like that before. At common, right? Yes, at common. I didn't even notice that there was one in every color. I just noticed there was Jackal Pop and Vampire Lacerator. And I, I think I saw there were Savannah Lines. I was like, wow, you can probably draft aggressive decks in this format. So I went into the, the format with the intention of just trying to draft aggressive monocolor decks. So the first draft I did, I drafted a mono red deck, which I actually think that aggressive mono red decks are not very good in this format. Why is that? Ryan's not going to be happy to hear that, Ryan Sachs. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, basically, they're just not as good as the black decks is the problem. Hmm. I know from uh, last week's episode, you guys were talking about how much you liked Frenzied Goblin and Mog Flunkies. I don't think either of those cards is as good as the kind of black equivalents. Being Vampire Lacerator and Cutthroat? Yes, basically. I think that there's enough cheap removal and interaction with that it prevents the Flunkies from getting to attack consistently. Like, I've had a bunch of decks with them where you play it on turn two, and it doesn't get to attack till turn five, because your opponent has, like, either keeps killing your other creature, or they use choking tethers on your other creature, or they just play something that would eat your other creature. So it's not consistent enough for what it offers, which it's, it's a slightly oversized body, but, like, black, you can just play Erg Raiders, and you have a 2-3 instead of a 3-3, but it pretty much always attacks. And then the Lacerator's just a lot better than Jackal Pup. It practically doesn't even have a drawback in this format. The games don't stall out in a way that it, it really is disadvantageous. Whereas the Jackal Pup, if it gets to like turn seven or eight and you want to attack with it, your opponent might just be able to triple block it and kill you. <laughs> and so when you said you went into the format with the intention of drafting those monocolored decks, like, are you picking Vampire Lacerators like second pick, third pick? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I can't tell you specifically for this draft, but I'm pretty sure I've started drafts with just first picking a Vampire Lacerator. Over better cards, like over a murder, over a Chandra's Not Outrage? Not over a murder. So I think murder's the best common, and it's certainly the best black common. I think that Disfigure's the second best black common. I think Vampire Lacerator might be the third best black common. Wow. Like, once you get beyond the, the top two, there's a lot that are roughly the same. Mm -hmm. Like, this set is so crazy. There's, there's six black spells that are CMC1, and I think that five of them are just all really good cards. 
Like I, yeah. I think Lacerator is great. I think Ruthless Ripper is great. Supernatural stamina is not great, but it you need a little bit of that stuff to make sure your two twos can continue attacking. And I think Unearth is really great too. I, I think that that is a card that people underrate. When you're going to draft an aggressive deck like this, you want to make sure that you're ahead on like through turns four or five. You want to have cast more meaningful spells than your opponent. Which some of that is just like starting on turn one. You you know you play one drop and they don't do anything. You're you're ahead. But another way that you can do that is if you get to turn four, say, and you've traded your creatures with your opponent's creatures, and then you go Phyrexian Ghoul, unearth my Dusk Legion Zealot or Vampire Lacerator or whatever it is. Unearth allows you to have a one mana play that is like a legitimate play that you can play two spells on turn four or five. That's kind of one of the goals with being an aggressive deck is being the person who gets to play two relevant spells first. Hmm. I never thought about it like that. Probably because I never draft aggressive decks well. <laughs> I'm just like, let me wheel spin and fix my mana and play my bomb, and I'm dead. <laughs> I was going to say one more thing about like specifically the mono color aggressive decks in this format. I'm not a big fan of drafting aggressive two color decks in this format because so much of the like the aggressiveness comes from having a one drop because there are so many good one drops. And it's just very hard to put enough colored sources in your deck to aggressively play one drops of two different colors. I'm so happy to hear you say that because that is my exact experience. It makes me so nervous to have to run like 8-8 eight, eight, because then I'm like feeling that I might flood out and then like you have to have a good combination of like a plains and a forest and a white one drop and a green one drop or whatever. It's just like, I feel like I'm mulligan a lot when I have decks like that. I've had that exact same experience on Magic Online with, with the aggro decks. My most common ways to lose are to screw. And I think the, the decks are built to have that happen to them more often than other decks. All right. K Diddle wants to know, what are some things great limited players do that good limited players don't? I think this question's awesome because I would consider myself a good limited player, but not a great limited player. And uh, I'm supposed to assume I'm the great limited player here. That doesn't. I think so. That's the assumption. Yeah. (laughs) Realistically, there are definitely players who are better than me, and I know that they're better than me. It is a pyramid, and I guess I recognize I'm I'm close to the top. But I can see the people above me, and I I I don't like it that they're above me. That's for sure. (laughs) To be honest, it's kind of hard to say because I've been trying to focus on like how do I like Huey Jensen's the current world champion. He's a good friend of mine, and he's a teammate of mine. He's definitely better than me. And honestly, I play way more than he does. So I feel like I should be able to catch up to him. And I don't know how to do it. Like, I can't figure out what what he's doing that I'm not doing. Which is a little bit frustrating for me. But I mean, I'm very happy to see him do well. So that's a double-edged sword. If you're talking about, like, what are people who... If you're somebody who's, you know, playing on Magic Online and you're, uh, you know, you're playing in the limited PTQs and you feel like you just need to know a little bit more to get to the top eight or maybe you're getting to the top eight and not winning or maybe you're making day two of Grand Prix and feeling like you're lost... I would say that one of the things you need to do, and it, it, this is, it's very hard to do, unfortunately, is you need to move beyond thinking that the way to get better at limited is to learn pick orders or card evaluation. I think that the number one thing that people don't put enough time into is actually good gameplay. Yeah. Which it's very hard to focus on that because honestly, you can go through a bunch of games of Magic where... Like, once you're good, there are not a lot of hard decisions. You know, you you can just play the game on autopilot, and you're not going to miss anything. But to be really great at Magic, it it means that you're getting the last couple percentage points of match win percentage that you can get. 
And that comes from making the like counterintuitive play a lot of the times. Or an example of like a, a really great play in a game of limited might be where, you know, your back's against the wall. And if you watch Huey do this in a feature match area, he has this posture he's really well known for where he'll kind of tilt his head down and he'll have both of his hands on his head like he's really, really thinking. He does this in Constructive, too. And what he's thinking about is, what are the cards that are left in my deck? What do I need to have happen to get out of this situation I'm in? You know, like, how how do I win even though I'm behind? And, you know, do I need a specific set of things to happen? And what are they? And, like, how do I maximize my chances for that happening? And so, like, that sort of, to get the last few percentage points of actual gameplay, it requires you to really be always thinking about a plan of how am I going to win the game? Or if you're winning the game, like, how am I going to make sure my opponent doesn't come back? That's a really big one. The other one is, honestly, like, if you want to go from the best person at your store or, you know, somebody who's doing well on Magic Online but not doing great, most really great players take way more risks than players who are a couple of tiers below them because they kind of understand that you need you can't really play magic all that conservatively most of the time because just like the randomness of the draws is going to decide a lot of it so if you're playing conservatively and like not really trying to pressure advantage as much as you can that you're allowing your opponent to have a good top deck. You know, you, you let them live one extra turn because you play really cautiously and then they draw the card that beats you. And that's a disaster. So it's definitely the case of like trying to find every little edge that you can, that is profitable for you to take. You need to find them all or aspire to at least. And that means that a lot of the times you need to be really aggressive. And maybe it means you make an attack like on turn three for two damage that it was a close attack and you're sitting there thinking, oh, you know, do I want to attack here? My opponent might attack me back or they might trade. And maybe you don't know what the right answer is, so you don't do anything. But to be a really great player, you, you need to figure out the right answer. And, you know, some of the time it is attack. And maybe that two damage winds up being relevant 10 turns later. It's hard to, to tell people how to get better at playing the games, but it's the area that most people need to focus on, I would say. Yeah, that's super interesting. Was it during the was it during the mocks? Yes. During the mocks, Paul Rietzel was talking about like just people not attacking and blocking and casting their spells as much as he does, which is super interesting. Like it seems so simple, but like Yeah, Paul and I he's on Team Ultimate Guard too. So I, I get to prepare with him a lot. He and I definitely think pretty similarly that, you know, the the way magic works, it's really heavily biased towards taking actions. Because the game's only gonna last like, you know, a game of limited lasts maybe eight turns or something. Maybe, on average, obviously, like, sometimes they last a lot longer. But if you put a creature into play, you're not really going to have that many opportunities to use it. (laughs) Like, you could play a creature and the game ends three turns later. You had maybe, you know, two chances to attack and three chances to block or whatever. And if you're passing up on those opportunities, that's a really big cost. Because, you know, you put the creature into play to use it, and however many opportunities you're passing up on, like, that's all wasted opportunities. And you don't get that many. So you need to figure out the right play, which... It's too hard to, I I can't give you one way to figure that out. But once you figure out the right play, you need to do it. And sometimes that means that, like, my opponent's attacking me with a a creature. This is maybe, this is going to be a little bit more concrete example. My opponent plays a 2-2 for 2. And my hand, like, I was on the play. My third turn, I don't play anything. My opponent attacks me for 2, I go down to 18. My fourth turn, I draw, I play my fourth land. The only play I can make is a 5-2 for 4. And, like, you know, I've got some other good cards, but they're all more expensive. 
So my opponent draws his card for his fourth turn. I'm at 18. He's got a 2-2. I've got a 5-2. He attacks me with his 2-2. So now you've got a real choice. Like, do I want to trade my 5-2 for your 2-2? And you need to look at your hand to make this decision. But the reality is that if you don't have a specific plan for how your 5-2 is ever going to do anything better than trade with a 2-2, you should probably trade with the 2-2 and just save the 2 life this turn. Because if your opponent's attacking with their 2-2, you know, they're planning to play something else on their turn. They're not going to just race 2 into 5. So they're going to play whatever their other creature is, and they definitely, they want the 2 damage, and they're willing to risk that you're going to attack with the 5-2, and they're going to trade with their new creature. They're basically telling you that I'm going to keep sending my, like, worse creatures than your 5-2 into the 5-2 until you're willing to trade with it. So once you decide that you're going to need to trade, you should do it right away. I don't know if that makes sense, because you could have cards in your hand where you could decide, I'm never going to trade with the, my 5-2 with the 2-2, like I'm about to put Spectral Flight on my 5-2 and just race in the air or something like that. But if you if you look at your hand and you're like, I have no plan for why this 5-2 is ever going to be better than the 2-2, you should trade and preserve your life total. Yeah, makes sense. MTGO Mike wants to know, is there a number of removal spells you look for in a deck? Also, how do you decide when choosing between good removal and good creatures? This is going to be archetype dependent, so there's not like a specific answer. Certainly for removal spells, the way that most people draft and the way that most sets are designed, removal spells are scarcer than creatures, and so a good removal spell is almost always better than a good creature. The only, like, the exceptions to that would be creatures that are sort of going to win the game on their own. Like, if you play Cube and you you have a Consecrated Sphinx, I mean, you could have gotten Consecrated Sphinx in the draft format it was printed in. Or, like, the Glorybringer's kind of a, a mix. So, a lot of times the best creatures are also removal spells. But, what's a good example of one in a current set? I'm trying to think. Uh, like, maybe Angel of Invention was, it's from a somewhat recent set, it's still standard legal. Like, that's a card that could win a, win a game on its own. So, that you know, that's better than a, a good removal spell. But if you look at, uh, certainly the in Ixalan block and, and all the recent sets, if you look at the cards that people aren't playing with that almost make, never make their deck, there's a, a lot of like perfectly serviceable creatures there. So you shouldn't really be that concerned about like, I'm not going to get enough creatures. Yeah, makes sense. If you ever go and draft like Mercadian Masks or like one of those really old sets where there's, the cards are just almost all bad, you can really wind up with a deck where you're like, I only have eight creatures I want to play. Mike didn't specifically ask this, but if you're going to play with combat tricks or auras that enhance creatures, like anything that needs a body to be in play, you do need to prioritize making sure you get to a certain number of creatures. Like if you're going to have six combat tricks in your deck, you're going to want to have 15 or 16 creatures or even more if you could get them. So you might just not even have any removal spells then. The only thing that really matters is if you're going to play with cards that rely on you having creatures, you need to play a lot of creatures. Sweet. We've been talking a lot about uh, the concept of drafting with preferences on the podcast, where like you're trying to make picks that like when it's close, steer you into an archetype that you prefer. Is that something that you do at all when you sit down to draft? Yeah, definitely. Like as opposed to like the stay open always all the time, pick the best card, like try to read what's open. If you've ever heard like Ben Stark talk about staying open, I I, kind of disagree with like he's definitely like you need to be open, wait a while to find your lane. I don't really agree with that. I think that you, I basically, when I sit down to a draft, my goal is that I'm going to pick the most powerful cards I see in the draft, like, and I want them to wind up in my deck. So whenever I get an opportunity to take one of these like premium powerful cards, I'm going to do it. And then I'm just going to try to piece together a coherent deck around that. 
So what that means is if I get like a really powerful card to start a draft, I'm going to bias myself towards whatever archetype it makes sense to have that card in. So if like hypothetically I start out with a sweeper, like, you know, I get Fumigate or Hour of Devastation or whatever the sweeper might be, I'm going to try to wind up in a control deck. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I'm going to be a particular color combination, although there will be, like, if I prepare for the format, I'll know that if I want to draft a control deck and I start with Hour of Devastation, you know, I'd rather be red-blue as opposed to red-black, or I don't remember the specifics of that format. That might not be the right answer for that format, but it's that sort of thing where part of my preparation is if I get a card like X to start, it most wants to be in a particular archetype. The best color pairings for that archetype are whatever they are, and so I'll look to see if they're open. And it's all it's all on a sliding scale, obviously. So, you know, sometimes you wind up with the red-green control deck, which sounds like it would be awful, but maybe that's what was right for the draft. Hmm. That is a ton of good information here. I think that's a good place to wrap things up. I could keep talking to you for hours and hours and hours about magic. This has been super interesting. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, Andrew. Well, thanks for having me. I had fun. If uh, if people want to get in touch with you or, or find you, uh, where, where can they do that? Twitter is my handles, Andrew Cuneo. And I also, I stream occasionally on Twitch, which I think my, it's, it's either Andrew Cuneo or Gainsay on Twitch. I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure it's your your name. Yeah, my stream is not super friendly to people, I would say. You kind of got to find it on your own and it, it's it, you're either going to like it or or you're going to leave kind of vibe. Although the the most recent times I I I don't stream very often. I I just do it when I think that I have something, you know, fun to play that people are going to want to watch. The most recent times I've done it, I did not stream with music, which I'm sure a lot of people were thankful of. Because I, I have at times streamed with a lot of music that people really did not like. But you have been streaming with you playing music, is that right? Uh, so what I've been doing lately, one of the reasons I stopped streaming is because a lot of times when I play Magic Online, I play guitar while I'm drafting. Yeah. And I thought that it was too, like, it's just, it's too much to be streaming at the same time. And also, I, I sometimes people complain that the guitar is too loud or too annoying or whatever. So I was just like, you know, I just want to play guitar and stream and be left alone. <laughs> or, or you know just be left alone and not stream but i decided to stream a little bit and some people tell me they like it when i play guitar it's kind of, it's not like it's not good guitar playing because it's literally like you stop every five or ten seconds and make a draft pick so it's just incoherent noodling but some people enjoy it yeah i, I liked it watching the vod i thought i enjoyed the incoherent noodling yeah, I have enjoyed it quite a bit. I haven't caught the recent ones, but back before you took a break, I was watching your stream quite a bit. So next week, we'll probably be discussing some more. Uh, Anniversary 25, maybe uh, looking towards the Modern Cube coming out before we uh, get to dive into some Dominaria spoiler season. Yeah, if you've got uh, any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Andrew, for being on the show this week, and we'll catch you all next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Bye.